Hello, and welcome to CQ Speaks. I'm your host, Colin DeKesheter. And joining me today is someone I've been trying to get since I took over as host. And finally, maybe out of pity for me and the difficulty of recording safe and socially distant episodes, she's agreed. She is a writer of essays and fiction, the former managing editor of Washington Square Review, and a current finalist for Restless Books Immigrant Writing Prize. She has recent work in The Common and The New England Review. She is also my wife. Elisa Koyrak is here. Hi, Colin. Hi, Elisa. <laughs> We're also sitting at our kitchen table. Yeah, it feels very nice to be recording from the comfort of our own home, or at least indoors for the first time in a few months. So thank you. You're welcome. Good to be here. <laughs> um, so I think you might have the highest literary standards of anyone I know. Oh, God, don't, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's true. Maybe uh, Kylan Rice, our, our current editor-in-chief, is, is a tie. <laughs> maybe, that's a, maybe that's a managing editor slash editor-in-chief uh, trait. But before we get into talking about a piece in the summer 2020 issue of the Carolina Quarterly, can you maybe say a little bit about what you look for when you're reading, either for pleasure or, well, yeah, specifically for pleasure, I guess. I have the privilege of only having to read for pleasure <laughs> these days, now, yeah. <laughs> um, as I'm not editing any journal or in any sort of academic program. So I get to be as picky as I want. And, you know, the answer to that question changes, I think, every time I read a good book or read a good short story. And mm -hmm. so it's very hard to give a universal answer. Um, right now, I think probably with the story in mind that we will talk about, I won't spoil yet which one it is, but I, two elements of good fiction come to mind. And the first one is character, of course, which is hard to leave out of any conversation about fiction. But the truth is I'm less concerned with characters that are unique or new or different from what we've seen before mm -hmm. um, and much more interested in getting a real glimpse into a life. And so for me... I think that usually means, and this is, of course, a concept that exists, a certain generosity on the writer's part towards the characters, mm -hmm. either revealing the motivations or the feelings of a character without any judgment. I think that's one of the most um, incredible things a writer can do and offer a reader. So that's one piece. And then for me, the other element I'm thinking about, and this is a little harder to define, and I haven't really quite figured out how to say it, but here it goes, um, is some sort of relationship between the character and the environment or the mood of the story. Mm -hmm. it's, it's clear when those things are married really well together um, and it, the story kind of is elevated to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to pinpoint exactly where that is on the sentence level, but either it's like a balance between the environment and the character or on the other hand, a very potent tension between the environment and the character. Mm -hmm. And it always feels very well thought through by the writer and very well-intentioned whether it is or not. And it's very effective when the character is somehow, I, I guess that's just creating a real world where the character feels very much in the space that right. the story takes up. That's very abstract. No, I don't, that's not <laughs> abstract at all. A lot of things are jumping to mind. The half of uh, Middlemarch that I've read is like a good example. <laughs> One day he'll read the other half. <laughs> One day. Another writer that really comes to mind is Faulkner, right? Like you cannot totally. separate yeah. his characters from his environment, from their environment. So you've viewed a lot of things. So 
full disclosure, we've been reading and chatting about and swapping in uh, our respective copies of this issue for, for about a week. Um, so I know that you particularly like Aisha Harvey's The Code of Many Colors, and Faulkner is sort of in the first paragraph, I thought, um, at least with the clouds of dust catching the, the sunlight. Um, reminds me of the beginning of Absalom, Absalom. But um, you also mentioned tension and judgment, which I think are really interesting in this story in terms of their presence and absence or yeah. where they rear their head and where they don't. Um, we'll get into that maybe a little bit more, but before we jump into it, do you want to go over the plot of the story so people aren't lost? Sure. Um, and, you know, I think there are no real spoiler alerts here because like great fiction, telling you the plot points is not going to spoil it in the least. But in Harvey's story, essentially it begins with a granddaughter, 15 years old, spending the weekends at her grandmother's house, who is suffering from either amnesia or dementia, but certainly forgetting what's going on around her. And this grandmother keeps confusing her granddaughter for the grandmother's dead sister. This confusion is even more complicated by the fact that the granddaughter finds this beautiful, um, richly colored coat that belonged to her uh, great aunt and is wearing it um, a lot of the time. So that makes the grandmother think that this must be her dead sister. So the story is all about identity, um, adolescence, race, relationships with a previous generation. And all of this is somehow crystallized on this one day, essentially, at her grandmother's house. Where or, or, or how does, um, does this story, um, Aisha Harvey's The Coat of Many Colors, meet some of the criteria that you're talking about? Yeah, so I'm a very, uh, I don't know what kind of reader to call this. I like sentences that jump out at me or kind of paragraphs, and it's, it's almost difficult for me sometimes to talk about a story as a whole or in a thematic sense. Right. Thus, I will never be in a PhD program. <laughs> so going back to what I was saying about this marriage, happy or tense, between character and environment, I would love to just dive right in and point out a, a specific moment that I think just shows that relationship so well and in so doing reveals kind of what the characters are feeling uh, through the environment. Mm -hmm. So this is, if it matters, on page 32. The protagonist of the story, Almea, has invited um, a boy over to her grandmother's house, and she is black and this boy is white, and they have this kind of burgeoning relationship and seem to really like each other. But it's pretty awkward in front of the grandmother. So after dinner, they go out to pick pecans from the ground in the dark. And this is the short moment. I take him out back. He flicks on the light. It casts a milky glow through barren trees. The ground is soft with mulch. Its decay sweetens the night air. Beneath the pecan tree is a rain-filled tin basin. We peer in. Our murky reflections look back at us. So that small moment is all about the yard and setting and describing the imagery around them, but it's really about the characters and kind of this magical and fraught moment they are in because they're 15, 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And these words like milky and barren and soft um, just kind of evoke a sense of desire and a question of fertility and the phrase decaying sweetness 
is all about just that question of physical attraction. And so I love how in that moment they're alone for the first time that night Mm -hmm. and the night itself is filled with all those things that they are feeling. Yeah. It's so lush, the language right there. And it's, yeah, it's just this moment where they can sort of both breathe freely for a second and they, and they sort of, they're taking in everything. And there's still so much uncertainty, right? Their reflections are murky. Like they don't, they themselves don't know what to expect from themselves or from each other. And Mm -hmm. it just feels so true to that age. Yeah. And the issue of knowing who you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, the question of the me in the story is thrown into the confusion immediately in the beginning. She said, I can't say grandma gave it to me, the coat that's referenced in the title. For that to be true, I'd have to be me. And then later on, I know I can correct her. I can say, it's me, Almea. Not Mildred, but me. <laughs> this keeps going on. And the issue of the coat is also another layer of an expression of the self and where the self begins and ends. Um, you mentioned when you're doing the little plot overview, not little plot overview, uh, exceptionally well done <laughs> plot overview. Um, Stop complimenting me. They're okay. going to think it's because I'm your wife. Uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, but you mentioned several themes, adolescence, race, did you mention time? I didn't, and I should have. One of my criteria for, for fiction and also poetry is just strangeness. And there's something just enough off-kilter about this story that keeps my interest really, really piqued. It's sort of Borgesian in that at its surface, it's a very straightforward story. There's like a Chekhov's gun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like very um, technically savvy. It moves really nicely. Building suspense. Building suspense. <laughs> There's a ton of tension, which we mentioned. But but Harvey's dealing with time, I think, is where the strangeness really comes through. There's mixing of past and present tenses. There's the idea that the story that we see is going to happen over and over and over again. I'll read a little Generations more. of women wearing that coat? Well, yes. It, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But also, like, the day is going to... That day is going to repeat itself. Mm. Um, I'll read this little moment. It's on page 31. They're waiting for uh, the the white boy to come over. We are sitting out on the front porch. Grandma is wearing her black dress, the one she only wears for church and company. Her lace sleeves scratch my shoulders as we rock back and forth together, our eyes on the road. I am not wearing the coat. It is at the bottom of the cedar chest where we find it. So that where we find it is very strange because Mm -hmm. the coat has already been found. She's worn it to school, but she keeps putting it back in the cedar chest. And this happens a few times where she says in the future where we find it where we find it so it's just really sad uh, in a sense that she might just be reliving this sort of search hmm. the story doesn't strike me as sad though i guess sad's the wrong word tiring i don't think that moment of uh, finding the coat which is every time it's mentioned it's mentioned in the present or future tense which is fascinating mm-hmm. um i almost think it's almia's i don't know some sort of like an attempt to be honest with herself because she says very early on in the story that she's concerned because she doesn't feel like her grandmother really gave her the coat. Right. Her grandmother was happy to see her in it thinking that it was her dead sister. Yeah. And so whenever Almea wears the coat, she knows there's a little bit of, um, I don't know about dishonesty, but just kind of pretending with her grandmother mm-hmm. and she's kind of taking advantage of her grandmother's um, fading faculties. So, I think that keeping that moment in the present is almost like there's a self-awareness there on Almia's part that she knows it's not really hers. And she knows that moment is still very much in this moment of time for her grandmother. Mm -hmm. 
Does that make any sense? Yeah, I guess it's, a, I mean, they are. she is only 15, so I guess it's sort of a, and she seems like a very, very good person <laughs> who wants to look after her mm-hmm. her um, grandmother. Her father only lets her go there two days a week. She, and also wants a bit of freedom from her dad. <laughs> and wants a bit of freedom from her dad. Um, so it seems like this is a way of like acting out, pretending to find the coat over and over and over again. But it's interesting, we haven't talked about, I mentioned Chekhov's gun, but another one of the sort of, there's like, four side plots or plots going on simultaneously in the story. One of them is that, or maybe the main one is that her grandmother keeps a gun in the house Mm -hmm. and they keep finding it and hiding it. And then she finds it and they hide it. And so going off of the idea of hiding the coat and finding it again, why do that with the gun? Why not just get rid of the gun the first time you find it? Because Almere respects her grandmother too much. Right. Right? There is that relationship between the two of them that's very um, reciprocal, where Almere is not just accepting that her grandmother is this old woman who can't, you know, think for herself or do for herself. Mm. So, and I think taking away the gun would kind of be an acceptance of that. Mm. Something I loved were the details about kind of their history that made you understand why Almeo still respected her grandmother so much, despite the fact that her grandmother, you know, was overflowing the tub and didn't remember to turn it off, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So Almeo says, I am sweeping, grandma's humming. I can hear her through her bedroom door. It is her favorite tune. I know it by heart because I learned to walk to it when I was two. Mm. Like that kind of detail, I, that, I, that's what creates character. That's what creates an entire history and love between two characters in about 12 words, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think, really I think Harvey does a fantastic job with that. Yeah. And, and also the grandmother's choice <laughs> then to hide it in very obvious places. So that's the funny part. Right. The grandmother only hides it in very obvious places where Almia can find it. Almost like she knows that Almia is concerned <laughs> that she's forgetful and yeah. that she should not have access to a gun. And so she leaves it for her granddaughter to find. And that, there's something very sweet about that relationship. They're both pretending that the grandmother still should be able to have this gun. So they're both playing into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. We're sort of talking about the way in which a lot of things aren't disclosed, which is mm. something really interesting about the, about the story. I'm just remembering when her grandmother calls her Millie, she says, I know I can correct her. I can say it's me, Almea, not Mildred, but me. But then I might never know what happened. Mm-hmm. And then that whole plot line of like trying to find out what the gun is for just goes away. Well, it doesn't at the end. It really? comes back very strongly. We find out what the gun is for. Okay, yeah. The, okay. That's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> so it's she, for scaring off white boys that come and mess with Millie. Absolutely. Yeah. It's for keeping, it's for protecting her sister and for all of these black women. It's for, I think, self-preservation, really. And it's such a interesting question that this writer puts in our lap of does Alme need that protection, right? And and the writer doesn't give any easy answers. Um, if we if we move into a conversation about race in this story, there's such a clear curiosity on Alme's part, but there seems not to be a fear. Mm-hmm. And so this relationship she's having with this boy she really likes because he draws, you know, Pluto's on his jean jacket um, and calls her his Neptune. Mm -hmm. Uh, I keep, I kept waiting for like a little bit of fear because that's what my bias brings into the story. Right. And it never comes. And so what moment I found the most interesting and perhaps kind of wondered if 
somehow uh, was speaking to the question of race or pretense or kind of these like outer labels playing a role um, between this girl and her crush was on page 35, right? They're finally alone in her bedroom Mm -hmm. and they have put Alma's grandmother to bed. And there's this beautiful scene between this boy and girl that doesn't feel overly sexual. That just feels like kind of the explorations of two 15, 16 year olds. Mm -hmm. And except for this really odd moment, you know, they're making out and then this happens. He is breathless when he finally speaks. Can I ask you something? What's that? My shirt is halfway up. His hands encircle my exposed waist. Please don't laugh at me. Go ahead. Could you wear the coat? Right now, I ask. He blushes but says, yes. I look over at the cedar chest, knowing that it's there. Okay, just make sure the door is locked. It's locked, he he assures me, jiggling the doorknob to be sure. So it was shocking for me that (laughs) this is maybe me not knowing 16-year-old boys well enough, but in my head, like a 16-year-old boy who's finally, you know, (laughs) you know, hooking up with this girl he really, really likes, this crush from school. It's, you know, and like, wow, he's about to see her naked. And he pauses and he wants her to put on the coat, which Mm -hmm. seems very, something like a much older experienced person would do you know someone who has like more sexual experience who has like already knows what their kind of fetishes are (laughs) and so it's so surprising to me and this is probably the moment where I really wonder I don't know I don't know exactly what's happening but it seems to me that the grandmother keeps thinking Almea's Millie and now this boy too is wanting Almea to be something else Mm -hmm. and and see, and this is the brilliance of Harvey. Like, there isn't really any judgment of right. the boy of Almea agreeing. It's just this like big question mark in the air. What do we What do we do with this? Mm-hmm. So we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you what you think about the ending. Um, we've talked a little about how disclosure or or the lack thereof sort of works in the story, and you mentioned the the large open ended question at the heart of the story and likely in the um, minds of most readers. But do you think that there's a a satisfying resolution here? I mean, we've mentioned like Chekhov's gun and the building of tension in the story, which is so strong. And you, despite all of these characters, you know, being very kind to each other and respectful to each other, there is this like sense of impending kind of rolling conflict. Mm -hmm. And it all comes to a head when the grandmother wakes up in the middle of the night um, and comes into Almea's bedroom and sees her with this boy. And Almea has to convince her grandmother that no one is there, you know, taking advantage, um, in fact, of her grandmother's sickness. So, and that's, that's like a very sad moment, but all of the tension is released in the very end. And I don't know, maybe this is a spoiler alert, but... (laughs) It's really well done, so we'll talk about it anyway. Um, the grandmother's so concerned that she's that Almea is with a white boy, and the repercussions this is going to have on the family and the trouble they're going to get in. And the grandmother asks, "Don't you know who you are?" And Almea says, "Of course I do. I'm Neptune, and I glow like the sea, especially in Aunt Mildred's coat." 
So this is the first admission to her grandmother's face that she is not yeah. Millie. You know, she's saying to her grandmother, I'm wearing her coat, but I'm not her. And then grandma walks over to me, her brows furrow. And then out of nowhere, she giggles. That's why I gave it to you. You look just like Millie did when she was your age. So pretty and so bold she was. And finally, at the end, there is the real giving of the coat. Mm -hmm. that, not that taking advantage um, that we were talking about in the beginning. And Almea can have the comfort and the knowledge that she is finally, you know, fully owning this coat as a whole person and not as someone who's pretending to be someone else. This is the next line. I exhale with relief and collapse onto her ample bosom, just like I did when I was a small child. So for all the love and respect that was going on in this story, they really weren't truly connected until mm -hmm. uh, these last few paragraphs. Well, that was exceptionally well said, and I think is probably a good point to end on before we give too much more away. Um, everyone should get a copy of this issue and read it for themselves. It's truly, truly a remarkable story. And the more that Lisa speaks about it, the more I want to reread it myself. So thank you, Lisa, so much. That was, that was really illuminating. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's been really nice to talk about Harvey's story. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I'll have to twist your arm into another episode soon, <laughs> the way things are going. Um, so I couldn't help uh, getting a little bit of poetry into this uh, <laughs> podcast. And when I came across Adam Houle's poem, Easy Bird, in the summer 2020 issue, it really stopped me in my tracks. It sort of encapsulated what my days have felt like over the past months, um, though the hummingbirds have been waning. And I, and I felt it was something that our listeners should be able to hear in Adam's voice. I'll say a few words on it, but I think it does all the heavy lifting on its own. The first thing that grabbed my attention was that the poem has the feel of a calm and collected Gerard Manley Hopkins. When I heard Adam read it aloud for the first time, Seamus Heaney also came to mind. And I think that combination of poets is appropriate. Um, it has Heaney's naturalist bent and Hopkins's introspective care that sort of radiates so strongly outward that it affects um, others. With those two poets in mind, I would also say that Easy Bird is at once fierce and delicate. It also does something that I really love in contemporary poetry, but I think is growing more and more rare, which is that it straddles a line between being timeless and of the moment. And I think I'll let listeners see or hear rather what I mean by that. So seeing us out is Adam Houle reading his poem, Easy Bird. Hi, everyone. My name is Adam Houle, and I'm going to read Easy Bird from the summer 2020 issue of the Carolina Quarterly. Thank you to everyone who was involved in putting together the issue. Uh, it was a real pleasure to see a couple of my poems uh, in such fine company. Easy Bird. What trick of light or angle allows me to see so well the dun and green hummingbird zig its way from feeder to flower to the bleached dead bough I've not cut because I like the way it breaks the riotous mass of vines, the strangler's ivy, the wisteria that nothing kills, where it sits on a swaying throne in repose, wings at rest unlike the wasp's wings, 
or the mockingbirds, unlike my mind, which thrashes about and comes up breathless from a hundred thoughts and second guesses. I light on nothing so easy as you, my avian heart. The world's sick. We're part of it. If you'd like to learn more about the Carolina Quarterly, visit us at thecarolinaquarterly.com and follow us at facebook.com slash carolinaquarterly and on Twitter at nc underscore quarterly. Remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening and to be on the lookout for our upcoming issues. Until next time, read well, write well, and thanks for listening.